Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail. This is once again the final word. I'm Jeff Lemon. With me on the show, as always, is Adam Collins, because if he weren't here, I'd be doing it by myself, and that would be fairly difficult. On the show this week, we are going to talk to Telford Vice, South African cricket writer, about what's going on over there, where there's a, a fair bit of... Uh, political warring going on within Cricket South Africa, uh, a three-team tournament that they tried to set up and then had to call off almost as quickly, um, and, and a fair few other things going on at the same time. Uh, the country also going through a, a, a growing COVID-19 crisis. So uh, a lot happening over in South Africa, which we want to keep an eye on. We'll be talking to Telford in the second half of the show. And uh, Adam being in London where, well, I mean, there's a COVID crisis going on everywhere, but uh, London, it's happening there and, and Melbourne where I am, it's starting to fire up again here as well, Adam. So there's no getting away from it wherever you are in the world. No, there's not. Hi, Jeff. I'm glad we've got Telford on. I, th- I think we had Telford on the show like three years ago, but he's one of the most thoughtful uh, sort of considered cricket writers out there. Um, so yes, it's always worth listening when he has something to say. Uh, I'm actually on the South Coast today. I didn't, uh, I'm didn't. i down at Rachel's parents' place down in Sussex just to get away from London for a few days and uh, um, of course thoroughly in keeping with the, the guidelines of course, um, socially distanced and all the rest but um, yeah, so I'm, I'm probably a bit echoier than normal rather than sort of the, the quasi-studio I've got set up in my bedroom but anyway, the COVID situation over here, it's interesting like you see the numbers each day and I don't know. It's 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 as though people have checked out. Like the numbers are so big. I mean, over forty four thousand people have died in the UK that they know of from COVID nineteen. Now that there's such huge numbers, and you know, comparison hmm. to other countries in Europe, that it, it, it like almost even when a hundred people die of a day, or, or I think yesterday it was thirty something, and, and the numbers are always fewer on a weekend. That you're like, oh, okay, and you just move on with it. Whereas in Australia, it's the other side of the coin in that it's starting to ramp up. Certainly in Melbourne, the recent outbreaks, which means that I suppose Jeff, you're looking at places like the UK and saying bloody hell we don't want we don't want you know Australia to go down that path yeah there's there's the fear that things will start you know that this is the the start of it um getting to the point where it's out of control whereas somewhere like the UK it's completely out of control and so I, I guess by that stage people almost give up they say well there's no point worrying about the numbers because it's too late there's there's no stopping it which is it's sad but it's a reality i've thought about this quite a lot as well where if you know if 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 30 people die in some kind of misfortune you know if there's a a bus accident or a you know whatever it might be then we'll 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 grieve those people much more fully than you know nobody's really grieved the publicly nationally grieved the huge numbers of people who've died from this disease yeah, I think that's right. And, and I, I didn't mean to be flippant before when I said that we just don't pay as much attention. I think it's just you, 
you're weirdly conditioned to it. Like this is a um, because if you're behind closed doors, you're seeing the news reports. In fact, I don't think as many people are watching the news bulletins as as they were three or four months ago when we first went into lockdown. It's more people are focused on July the fourth when the next round of easing uh, kicks in. So that's over this weekend, and that's where people's attention is far more geared around the economy. Certainly since the Dominic Cummins saga a couple of weeks ago, um, when the government's authority on this was diminished considerably uh, in terms of telling people what to do. I was um, in South London last week and um, on my bike cycling past a prominent park and I tell you what, I mean, you would never know that we were in the middle of a pandemic. Whereas in Australia, specifically in Melbourne, Jeff, I mean, we're recording a couple of hours after the government have announced that 10 postcodes have been fully locked down again. So, but the numbers there are... I mean, infinitesimal compared to the UK. So, yeah, it's interesting how it's as though Australia got away with this to an extent over the last few months and now you've got to remain super vigilant to make sure that it doesn't regress. Now, I reckon when we linked up uh, before we started recording, this is the first day that I've seen you tired by having a baby uh, because up until (laughs) now you've been like freakishly energetic and cheerful every time I've spoken to you. You're not only being a new parent but also doing 20 other things having all these projects on the go and and seeming really enthused about it and today was the first day where you were a bit like oh (laughs) you haven't been sleeping much (laughs) the four month sleep regression it's called jeff so winnie is now four and a half months old and uh she's very enthusiastic and at night she's a rat bag she just likes flipping herself around over and over she's got a new a new trick which is basically rolling from stomach to back stomach to back and she can do it at you know at will so when we go to bed whatever time that is when she's had a couple of hours of kip quietly i think she realizes at that stage that she can play around a bit and flip herself over and wake herself up so she eventually migrates into our bed which doesn't get much better after that so uh yeah it's it's um it's just part of the experience all as we've been told and the literature we've read the four month sleep progression is a real thing because the babies are far more alert and they can do more things and their range of movements in increasing week by week so it's uh she's still an absolute <laughs> legend uh, and a joy to play with by day but yes the the nocturnal stuff we thought we got away with it a little bit you know good baby she slept from the get-go she wasn't bad early on by bad i mean she wasn't sort of crying all night or anything like that rage was able to feed her and put her back to sleep and and, and that was a bit of a routine mm. that we had for the first couple of months but yeah the the last two weeks it's getting full on but fun but yes uh, it, it, it's just a, a new challenge as we keep getting told everything's a phase with new babies i'm not sure if i've heard any other parents describe their baby as a legend but i'm glad you did <laughs> i don't know why i went to that word i don't know what, that descriptor you little legend yeah but um that's how i feel i feel like she's uh, um she's got a great personality uh she laughs a lot um she you know, craves sort of having stories read to her and music sung to her and, you know, loves making eye contact and all that. So it's, uh, yeah, we're having a a great experience so far, if not for the fact that there is, yeah, we we could do with a fraction more sleep. You know who else is a legend? Uh, William McGuinness. He is. We've had some lovely feedback uh, from the show that we did with William that we eventually put out last week. Um, I'd I'd kind of forgotten over the couple of weeks in the interim just how funny it was at times, but uh, Matthew Bulch wrote to us saying um, that it was like interviewing Robin Williams, um, <laughs> which 
which it really was because the number of impressions, the number of impersonations, and the key was very, very good. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just your standard sort of twelfth man repertoire. It was like, oh, who else is going to do a Vic Vivas impression doing the Sheffield Shield <laughs> reports from nineteen seventy six or, or whatever? Yeah, well, it I, mean, might have been. I mean, there was definitely that. There was the the impersonations and what. Matthew talks through I think that Robin Williams comparison is also perhaps just due to the fact of how off the wall it was I mean I listened to it back and he jumps from one topic to another topic and it's a it's a real ride and a fun ride too I mean I'd forgotten as well I think when you're doing one of those interviews you're really focused on the next question and the next conversation point and making sure it all goes smoothly and to an extent watching the clock and all of that because we if I recall correctly it was quite late at night in Australia when we were recording and we didn't want to you know eat into his private time but um going back and after the editing uh, that that DC uh, and and what you and DC had done on that interview listening at the final product it was so funny uh he was brilliant Uh, and and it was we got another message here from uh on twitter from ursus arctos 59 uh whatever that means the (laughs) great brown bear it's the brown bear oh that's the brown bear right okay well thanks Mm. for the brown bear he said it's interesting exploring how diverse a cricket community is we have shared experiences around the sport but the rest of our lives and interests can be quite different that interview was a brilliant example of how cricket can serve as a window opening onto a new world and that that was great too wasn't it that we you know and and we we talked about this with him in reference to his dad and what was passed through to him and in turn what he passed through to his son and daughter and like yeah it was it was wholesome it was nice it was a reminder that we kind of (laughs) fit into a much broader story when it comes to cricket much broader stories around cricket being discussed this last week or so there was a remarkable day in the UK on Sunday in the context of the Black Lives Matter protests the uh, conversations around the world on racial inequality and then all of this stuff came together on Sunday. Nick Holt published a piece in the Telegraph about Lonsdale Skinner who used to play for Surrey and heads the African Caribbean Cricket Association pushing the ECB to appoint a black Queen's Council to lead an independent inquiry to look at racism in professional English cricket. Lonsdale Skinner said that the black community has been deliberately excluded by English cricket since the mid-1990s. There are no black administrators or county chief executives, very few black former players in coaching um, and and even the black player numbers have declined massively. 75% in the last 25 years was the number that came through. Then interestingly, there was this podcast that came out through Sky Cricket with uh, Raj Tulsiani, the author, talking with Ebony Rainford Brent and David Elaine and Mark Butcher about the same subject and, and about the decline in cricket and it was notable especially coming from Sky which is a fairly conservative bastion a lot of the time and then the remarkable piece on the Cricket Monthly which is Crick Info's long essay website George DeBell collating a whole stack of interviews with Ebony again but uh, with Tamal Mills, Roland Butcher, Donovan Miller, Michael Holding, Tino Best, Chesney Hughes were all involved uh, and Richard Sargent as well who's an academic and Arthur Godsell who's an emerging young player coming through and having it entirely in their words but about their varied experiences being black players in English cricket and how there was a sense that it was more possible to speak about these things now than it might have been even a few weeks ago where it's such a difficult decision for these players to speak out because they worry about damaging their own careers in an overwhelmingly white sport and and that's a very real and and pressing concern. So across different media forms, all, all of these things came together on the one day and 
and suddenly it felt like there might actually be a shift in English cricket. It might not just be one thing that bubbles up for a day because it was so strong across the board. Yeah, it, it, it was, and that's well put. It, was, it wasn't as though it was, it was uh, timed this way or intentionally this way, but it, it felt as though on Sunday this was the entire conversation about cricket. We just sort of left COVID for, for a moment and, and we focused on uh, BLM and, and we focused on a discussion around um, systemic racism in English cricket. And look, I, I'm not going to say it was that well received on social media because, I mean, obviously comments on social media, you try not to pay an awful lot of attention Attention to sometimes when they're um, when they're coming from segments of the community who are probably never going to change their position on anything. But yes, there was a and there were a lot of. I mean, I, I saw myself in my own feed. There are a lot of white men who were very very disappointed uh, at the fact that we were talking about racism in cricket. Sort of the whole no racism at my club type of attitude, which was meant to um, sort of swamp what was being said by these black players and former black players. But Nevertheless, I, I feel as though uh, the way the ECB are taking responsibility for the situation at the moment, acknowledging uh, where in the past there have been wrongs, uh, the fact that these media outlets are emphasising hearing black voices. I mean, we said a couple of weeks ago, Jeff, when we first started making it a regular topic on our show, that it's important that we acknowledge that we're two white blokes, but these media organisations have made a point of putting this in, into the words, especially in the case of Sky when it was an all-black panel. And then George's piece, he didn't editorialise. It was part of the beauty of it really I think is that it was just it was like an an oral history form although it wasn't an oral history it was just like it was question and answer so it wasn't George in there this was uh, this was directly the words uh, in context to each question and that's sometimes hard to do when, you, when you're writing an interview through you, you kind of have to put your slant on it but George took the view that the best way of doing this was by taking himself out of it and it was really effective so I mean even next week when England host the West Indies in the first of those three test matches, which starts on July the 8th. Jason Holder spoke strongly yesterday about the importance of them wearing the Black Lives Matter logo on, uh, on his collar, and he did a photo shoot with that shirt yesterday. Again, the response was divided, and there were a lot of people who were very cross that um, this is now being talked about in cricket, uh, which is disappointing that people aren't willing to just take a step back and listen to what people are saying uh, who are actually being affected by this. But nevertheless, um, it's going to be part of this upcoming series between England and the West Indies. It's this bizarrely contradictory thing where you have conservative people who love cricket. You wouldn't find many of them who didn't love the great West Indies teams of, of the 70s or 80s, um, who didn't love these wonderful players or at least admire them. Did they think that those players did not believe in racial justice and equality and, and did not believe in wanting that for themselves and their, their children and their future? You know, how can it be a surprise that black cricketers for the West Indies team today would want to support that movement? You know, and, and it's just part of a ludicrous attempt to discredit the movement by making it seem like some sort of radical thing that it isn't when... The, uh, there's nothing radical about saying that all people deserve to be given the same opportunities and treated equally. Yeah, that, that's right. You, you often see the response. Well, it's just some um, cultural Marxist organisation which wants to kill all the white cops. You know, gibberish, basically. It's conspiracy theories that are peddled in, in, in dark corners of the internet which seem to seep through to, you know, otherwise sensible people who often do make a big contribution to the game. But the there, there's, there's a step that needs to be taken which is realising that in these comments, there's a strong theme where black cricketers have not wanted to talk that much about this in the past because they're feared yep. that their place in the pecking order, whatever pecking order it was at the time, would be under threat 
by being a big target. Now, Michael Carberry, you know, more power to Michael Carberry for being right out there on this from the outset a few weeks ago and, and almost paving the way for this conversation. But it, it isn't one or two cricketers here. We're talking about a, a flood of players past and present who are consistently saying that this wasn't something that was advantageous to talk about. So wouldn't that be the time when if you're, if you're someone who has experienced privilege, you know, essentially being white in this context, that you wouldn't be able to go, oh, right, that makes sense. Maybe we should shut up and listen to them. But that seems mm. for some people too much of a leap at this stage, which I, I guess ultimately means uh, we need to keep talking. Vish wrote an incredible piece uh, about this on The Independent uh, last week about the White Lives Matter banner, which was flown over the top of a Premier League game. And his argument, and I'm paraphrasing quite a, uh, a detailed one, but the ultimate goal of this movement is to make people be less racist, right? Like we want people to be anti-racist with us. We want this to stop. And at some level that requires the education process to get to the stage where people are willing to, to change their views. So in other words, it's all good and well to dehumanise racists and, and put them in a corner and, and tell them to fuck off. And that's very tempting and to belittle them and to belittle their views and to make a mockery of them. But it's also important that eventually they're not racist anymore. And that's the transition. It's how do we move from uh, almost mm. highlighting people saying awful things and how do we move it to uh, a point where they're willing to listen to these athletes in this case and, and willing to modify their views over time. And that, and that is a big challenge ahead of us. Another interesting little shift in the last week as well, Claire Connor is going to be the next MCC president. Um, that happened just after we sent our show through over the weekend. Uh, former final word guest, so Kumar Sangakkara <laughs> has been doing it. Um, I think has had an extended term because of COVID screwing everything up. But Claire Connor is going to take over next year as as the the first woman to be the MCC president. Yeah, fantastic news, Claire. Uh, you know, friend of ours, full disclosure, former guest, someone we have a huge amount of admiration for, and the director of women's cricket for the ECB, former Ashes winning skipper uh, in two thousand and five. Uh, you know, um, commentator. She's kind of done it all in the game. Obviously, serves uh, on ICC committees as well, so it makes perfect sense. In a way, it's weird that the MCC have taken two hundred and thirty three years to appoint a, a woman president. But on the other hand, and you know, I, I said this on, on Twitter. On the other hand, it's not weird at all because you look well, at the well, history of the organisation. Well, well that's right. No, you know, I, 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 I was, was citing Mike Selvey yesterday who said to me in an interview last year that the MCC um, were very good in the 19th century. You know, they're a very 19th century organisation and they're a very 21st century organisation. They just skipped the 20th century in between. And um, that, that, that's, uh, you know, shown by the fact that they didn't have women members until 1999, I think it was, uh, when Rachel Hayhoe Flint uh, finally managed to, to win that fight or win that debate. But yes, it's, it's only natural and only right that Claire gets this opportunity, I think, and she'll do a, a sterling job with it. Jeff, with the MCC, we, we actually talk quite a lot about how forward-thinking they are on the final word. We certainly have in, in, in the context of their environmental activism. But I note that last night uh, there was a story as well, also by George DeBell on Quick Info, which went to them taking down art or taking art. I'm not sure if they've taken it down, but they've certainly taken it out of the public areas of one of their former administrators who was a slave owner. Haven't got the details close to hand at the moment, but basically it's the first step from an MCC perspective in starting to reconcile some of their own history. A flow on from all of those um, those inconsistencies that have been pointed out over the last few weeks with people with 
very questionable historical figures being celebrated in public spaces as though as though all knowledge of them will somehow disappear if you you know take down a portrait of them or uh, get rid of a statue of them or whatever it might be but at the same time i think that's also a massive diversion from the more important parts of the conversation where you know people who want to try to stop any sort of progress on racial justice will try to fight their battles on the lines of like, oh, you shouldn't knock down statues or something. Where That's not actually the point. Like that's, that's no, yeah. by far and away the least important thing out of, out, of, out of the whole subject that's under discussion. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. It can, it can be a lightning rod, can't it? It can be easy in this culture war to point at one thing and go, well, that is the thing that they're trying to mm-hmm. do. But really, like you say, it's, it's, a far, it's far more serious than that. But uh, I, I suppose where um, you know credit goes to the MCC is that they're they're trying, uh, they're on the front foot, and and they and they know that they have history that needs to be reconciled. And, and uh, Richard Sargent in that George DeBell piece um, spoke eloquently about the idea of walking out to Lords and uh, and being at Lords and and having a link back to the slave trade. Um, and, and and I get that that makes sense in terms of trying to make a a venue which distances itself from that. Then then look at it might be one small thing and it may as you say Jeff. Um, end up backfiring but I, but I certainly see where they're coming from. We'll be speaking to Telford a bit about the South African board. Uh, a piece came through from Chris Barrett who we spoke to on the show a couple of weeks ago about Cricket Australia's board where basically it seems like um, the state associations or particularly Queensland and perhaps New South Wales are thinking this might be a good time to shake up the structure of the, the board completely. We, we sort of canvassed that with Chris when we spoke to him but apparently the the push is being renewed, according to his reporting, or, or that Queensland especially are going pretty hard on wanting a state representative model um, rather than the independent director model that they've had uh, for the last seven years. This was tasty, wasn't it, uh, Barrett, all over this as usual? So Chris Simpson from Cricket Queensland essentially alleging that uh, they're running a command and control operation out of Jollymont and that the states are being overlooked and their knowledge isn't being drawn down on as much as it would be if they had greater representation at board level. You know, independent directors were integrated to the board from 2012 onwards, which did change the way in which the states were represented. But um, through what we've seen in the last couple of months and the removal of Kevin Roberts, um, yeah, there is this view uh, being uh, detailed out of Queensland and, and New South Wales as well, according to Barrett, that they feel as though that they need to take another look. And I don't think they're saying that they go back to the pre-2012 board either, which had its significant problems and was overhauled accordingly. But um, whether there's a way to uh, you know, improve, as far as they're concerned, improve the amount of uh, contribution they can make to CA's decision-making structure at a board level. So, yeah, it feels like a bit of a watch this space. And look, Earl Eddings, who, who comes from the Victorian system, it'll be interesting to see now that he is chairman, of course, having been sort of a, a, a rep from the state system initially, uh, how he will interpret this and whether he might actually also uh, be in favour of having a greater say from the states into the future so they can avoid these kind of blow-ups, which seem to be fairly routine. Like, it isn't the first time we've seen the states in the last few years point the finger at Jollymont and say, you know, um, they're not doing things as well as they could be if they listen to us more. Our CBUS Super Performer of the Week, Shika Pandey this week, the bowler with the Indian women's team, swing bowler, wears a headband really well, but put up a really great, thoughtful Twitter thread about uh, recommendations that, that have been made about the women's game which are you know which are broadly limiting in terms of making the 
playing field smaller and the pitch is shorter and all these sorts of things. And, and she deconstructed it uh, very in, in a very measured way, but just went through each point and said, here are the problems, here are the solutions, you know, here are the ways in which this will or won't work um, and, and laid out a, a better vision. And I think you said, Adam, that she should get into administration once she's finished and, and on that evidence, uh, I'd agree. I, I do. I mean, she's coming towards the end of her career, Shikapandi. She's 31 now and been around for a pretty long time. But yeah, but the points she, were, she was making, were, I mean, we see this, don't we, about the 18-yard the pitch or the 20-yard pitch and make the ball smaller yet again and make the boundary smaller. Well, I mean, as she explained, uh, well, first of all, who was actually saying that the Women's World Cup was shit? Did I miss something here? Were, were, were there people out there saying that the Women's World Cup back in March wasn't a... An attractive spectacle. I mean, I've I've been to quite a number of women's tournaments now. You and I, Jeff, have been covering the women's game for well, really, when it went from amateur to professional, and it's only getting better. It's only getting bigger. We we talk about the WBBL and the volume of sixes from season one through to season five. I mean, any metric you want, the scoring rates, the and then the, I guess the stuff you need a cricket IQ to identify. So how many slow ball variations? How accurate? Uh, the bowling is how much variation you see from the spinners. I mean, everything about the women's game is hmm. getting better. Why would you now want to have a regressive conversation about making the pitch shorter? I mean, it makes no sense to me. But yeah, I love yeah. the way that Shika, instead of sort of having an emotional response to that, she had a, a methodical, articulate one. And I also liked how pretty much everyone jumped on her thread, which meant that it was amplified to millions and millions of readers. And it meant that, you know, through her well chosen words she was able to almost dispassionately unpack these arguments and it didn't come down to some sort of uh, social media scrap or slugging match uh, and that was most effective so i think she's a most appropriate winner of the cbus super performer of the week cbus invests directly back into the building and construction industry across australia creating jobs for members and supporting the industry cbus super .com.au for all your information about our great supporters there and make sure you download a PDS while you are there. Thank you to CBUS for being, yes, great great friends of, of the Final Word, Jeff. For more than a year now, they've been riding shotgun with us and for that, we're immensely grateful. <laughs> and they know that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance and we now know it too. <laughs> it is burned into my brain. I probably mutter that in my sleep. All right, Adam, now is the time for Nerd Pledge, the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page where they support the show by sending us an amount of dollars and cents that relates to a cricketing number and we have to work out what it is. That is the game. Uh, let us play it. Oh, you look like you want to say something. Oh, I just want to say that when we first started doing this, Jeff, which also goes back about a year, um, it was kind of like a... Not an afterthought, but we'd go, oh, right, here's the number. Do we know it? It was almost like a pop quiz. And, you know, we might come up mm. with something. We might not. We might go back later. Now it's become like a full research task each week. And I love it. I'm really enjoying <laughs> um, not only um, telling the stories of cricket history as we kind of go through the numbers, but also learning about bits and pieces that I didn't know before. So thank you, everyone, for, for your nerd pledges. We're getting ahead of the curve by thanking people first. But it, it meant I had a, a lovely couple of hours yesterday afternoon um, in between a number of other things I was working on and just uh, indulging in the numbers. And that's what we're going to do for the next 
20 minutes or so, Jeff. What's our first number? Indulging in cricket history. Well, thank you to Philip Meng, the accidental inventor of Net <laughs> Pledge. We will never forget you on this show. The, probably the first um, inductee into the formal Final Word Hall of Fame. I know we did the World Cup Hall of Fame last yes. year. Yes. Um, but, but, you know, if, if we had a permanent Hall of Fame, I think Philip Meng would be the, the first face on the wall. So, uh, oh, and the other thing I wanted to say before we start this is if you're a person who's already had your nerd pledge, you can change your number and have it again. It, it's not it's not like a one time deal. If you're signed up, you can you can go in, you can you can switch your number around, and then we'll see the change, and then we'll add it to the bottom of the list, and then when it comes around, uh, we'll do that as well. So you you can keep enjoying yourself as well as we're enjoying ourselves as time goes on. First nerd pledger enjoying themselves on today's show is Abalash Singh, who sent through very generously. Thank you, six dollars fifty one. Now we had six forty nine on the show last time we spoke. We've got six fifty one today. When it's a six, I'm usually thinking it's bowling figures. I'm usually thinking six for fifty one, and so I'm, mm. I'm I'm wandering through the halls of cricket history. And lo and behold, what do I find? None other than in nineteen oh four, Bernard Bosanquet, uh, the inventor of the Bosi, which became known later as the Googly, the leg spinner's delivery that turns the other way, the inventor of the Rongan, took six for 51 in 1904 at Sydney against the Australians when they were flummoxed by this ball that broke from the off to the leg and they could not pick it. This won't be the first time I say this in Nerd Pledge today, but uh, Jared Kimber's done a lovely deep dive on Bosey and the origin story of the Rongan, the Googly, the Bosey. Um, so I'm glad he he's first cab off the rank here today. Uh, he was, if I'm remembering uh, the story I learnt there um, accurately, he was of the upper class Bosey. He was of the... Oh, um, yes. He was of the... He was he posh was, ass. He, yeah, he, he, he was a posho, that's right. And he, he, uh, he had great opportunities in life to do a number of things, which included you know, playing billiards and hammer throw for, for Oxford when he was studying there and, and so on. But he, his main legacy really is the, the most exciting delivery in cricket, really, when you think about um, how it's um, had different reinventions over the years and different bowlers from different parts of the world who've had different takes on it. Yeah, I, I'm, I think that his legacy is a great one. He had a first-class game where he took 11 wickets and made twin tons um, <laughs> in, in a county match. Of, maybe it was for Surrey. I can't remember who he played for. I think, he's from, I think he played for Middlesex, yeah. yeah. He also represented Oxford in billiards and the hammer throw. Um, good things to know about Bernard Bosanquet or Bosanquet. I'm not really actually sure how you're supposed to pronounce it. The other one, though, and, and here's another great pioneer, Peggy Antonio. Peggy Antonio was a leg spinner who took Australia's first ever wicket in women's test matches in 1934 in, in the first women's test between England and Australia. She debuted for Australia aged 17, having only really taken up cricket at about 15. She was the daughter of Chilean Spanish migrants to Australia, somehow uh, worked out how to bowl leg spin. She bowled attacking leg spin with tantalising flight and variations of off-breaks, top spin and an occasional googly, according to her biographical note. Now, that first series in Australia, they lost two games and they drew the last game. And then they travelled to England in 1937. She went from batting at number 10 to opening the batting. And then she rolled up to Northampton to take six for 51, bowled England out and then took another three for 40 in the second innings in their run chase uh, and, and nabbed them 25 runs short. So Australia's first test win in 
women's cricket was on the back of Peggy Antonio's six for 51. She retired at the age of 20 from test cricket and she lived a long and fruitful life until 2002. Yes, that was the custom, wasn't it? You could only be a single woman if you wanted to play uh, play uh, international cricket in, in that early era uh, pioneering women. I hope that her first wicket or the first wicket for Australia was taken with the Bosey. You say here she had the occasional googly, mm. so that could well be the link through there. I've got one more for 651 though, Jeff, which also includes okay. a link spinner. None other oh, than yeah. poor old Bryce McGain. I mean, we all know what Bryce McGain's one and only test match where, well, the one and only innings he got to bowling as well, where the South Africans made 651 uh, in the Cape Town test match of 2009, uh, where McGain took figures of none for 149 from 18 overs. It was quite the clobbering. I, I don't know why I did this, but there, there was a video that, well, I don't know why I do a lot of things on YouTube, truth be told, but I, I remember <laughs> on one occasion, a video popped up in front of me of Bryce McGain talking after that performance. I thought, that's, that's a bit odd. Why would have Cricket Australia put him up for to do press after having figures like that with, you know, um, AB and Callis and Ashwell Prince having destroyed him? But looking back at it, it made sense because he was interviewed actually not at the end of his spell, but after six overs. So it must have been the close of play on day two or whatever it was before South Africa went nuts on day three. And at that point, he'd bowled like six overs, done for 20 or something like that, and had a couple of close calls with Prince. One, I think, just fell over Ricky Ponting at backward point or something like that. So he was ever so close to breaking through. He was full of confidence speaking at stumps. And you're watching this video, and it's kind of devastating because you know what happens next. So I think we said this mm. the other day, Jeff. When you know what's about to happen next, when you're seeing someone so happy, it can make it all, all the more worse. But yes, it wasn't the... Um, wasn't the uh, you know, I think as Victorians watching Bryce McGain bowl for so many years when he got his opportunities and that fantastic era he had as Victoria's number one spinner when, when obviously Shane Warne was on international duty or whatever it was, to know that when he finally got that chance and he finally got that opportunity in the third test, I mean, at least he got the baggy green, I suppose you would say, but um, hmm. and no one can take that away from him. He absolutely earned it. I think he was, what, age 35 or 36 when he played that game, maybe even 37 or 38. Yeah. But, um, yes, it didn't go well when South Africa compiled 651, so many of them, from the bowling of Bryce McGain. Abhilash Singh, hopefully your 6451 or your 6.51 is in there somewhere. You can always let us know. If it's not, drop us a message on the patron platform. Next on our list, a, a doubleheader, Sarah Berman, Glenn Wilcox. You were talking about you don't know why you do things that you do on YouTube. I spent a lot of time on YouTube in the last couple of days watching Graham Yellop highlights because this number was $2.68 uh, and whenever I see two six eight, I know that it's the score that Graham Yellop made um, his, his highest test score how the fuck did Graham Yellop ever make a run Adam like it is it is the most hideous batting action if you can describe it that way that I've ever seen he he's got this stance he's he's hunched over, leaning forwards, and then the bat's resting on the ground. And then as the ball's in the air, he sort of just leans towards it and then somehow at the last minute does a tiny little back lift and then sort of slaps through the ball. It's horrible. It's just truly horrible. Yeah, I, well, I think he was of his time to answer your question. He was a, one of the sort of great survivors, uh, which meant that he could bat for a long, long time, which was evidenced by when he made... 268. So maybe that was Sarah's. Maybe that was Glenn's. We, we will see. Uh, I think we've we've said a, a bit in the past, Jeff. Recently, some numbers keep coming up time and time again. Some people mm -hmm. keep coming up 
time and time again. Well, I, I just wanted to note, in the absence of anything better for 268, and there was one tie in a limited overs international of 268, I should add, between Ireland and Holland uh, in uh, Amstelveen in 2013. So that could be it. But if it's not that, it could be Nawada Patoti again, <laughs> who we've talked a lot about on, uh, on Friday. <laughs> Uh, just to note, you cannot stop talking about the Noah of Patel. That, that's just well. Just to note that guy, we talked boy. about his two Test matches for England on the Bodyline Tour of thirty-two, thirty-three. I said there was one more Test that he played for England before playing three for India twelve years later. Well, that was in nineteen thirty-four against the touring Australians. The first match at Nottingham. So his last Test match mm. for England was when Australia. Uh, went on to win by 234 runs, but England made 268 in the first innings of that game, which, of course, was the Nawab's uh, last chance to bat for England. He made it to 10, but not many more. So I doubt it's that, but just to say that, you know, there are some people and some numbers that are recurring themes on on Nerd Pledge, and I'm sure Nawab of Patoli will be back again soon. He's going to be back later on in this segment, actually. I'll give you advance warning when, when we do our re- revisits from last week. Um, but look, I'm, I like that. That's so tenuous that I'm going to go with that. Um, I'm going to credit the Nawab to Sarah Berman and I'm going to credit um, horrible Graham Yellops. See, Graham Yellops probably not horrible, but it's just his batting. You know, no offense, Graham. It's just, just, it's just, just, it just, it's not what I'm expecting when I watch someone lift up a cricket bat. That's all. I'll, I'll apply that to Glenn Wilcox for the two sixty eight. Thank you both. Next on our list, Mark Stein, <laughs> which is German for Mark Rock, with. $2.75. What does two seventy five oh, mean is, to you, Adam? This is beautiful. Just having a quick look now. Guess who was the 275th Australian man to play Test cricket? Who? <laughs> Graham Yallop. Oh, fuck so, <laughs> Stop following me, Graham Yallop. I, I've insulted Graham Yallop and now he's following me around. He, he's gonna. He, he's also going to murder me in a really idiosyncratic way that looks inefficient and you think he couldn't possibly do any damage, but then the next thing you know... He's, uh, he's, he's dropped you in a river 268 metres deep. I'm going to assume on this occasion that actually isn't Graham Yallop and we'll move on and we'll assume that Mark's been a fraction more creative than simply going to Yallop's cap. Um, I'm going to go to South Africa, to the number 275, where remarkably 275 was made twice in, in the same year by South African batsmen. So Daryl Cullinan, I think it was in February 99, and then... On the final day of Test cricket of the 1990s, um, Gary Kirsten completed his <laughs> marathon 275. And um, that was remarkable for a lot of reasons. One is that they were following on at the time and they went on to bat for three days after following on to make 572. Kirsten batted for 800 and 78 minutes, the second longest test innings ever, the longest, of course, being Hanif Muhammad, who batted for 970 minutes when making his 337 back in 1958 in the West Indies. But Gary Kirsten, 275, Daryl Cullinan, 275, of course. Hashim Amla went on to become the first South African to make a triple hundred uh, in 2012 at the Oval, but this was the South African record at the time. So that's where I reckon Mark might be, Jeff. And and you know Stein has that that Germanic sound that that could be yeah. related to South Africa, which you you do find here and there. Um, I I read a few weeks ago because I was procrastinating. I, I read a little history of Breaker Morant. You know the the oh, yeah. sort of Australian figure where he's considered to be this great injustice. That slight update newsflash: Breaker Morant definitely a war criminal. <laughs> definitely killed a bunch of prisoners. Uh, actually, definitely did it. Like admitted that he did it. So. I just thought I'd update people on that. If, if you're going around <laughs> thinking that it was a you know a real travesty of justice that Breaker Morant was accused of um, murdering people, it's because he did. 
Uh, and he told them so at his trial. He just didn't think he should get in trouble for it. So that's a different story altogether. Mark Stein, 275, thank you. Next on our list, a couple to go, two... Dollars eighty six from Alamilu two eighty six. Thank you, Alamilu. Uh, what does that number suggest to you, Adam Collins? Well, uh, will it surprise you to tell you that I think it goes back to another test match that we've talked about about seventeen times in the last four months? I'm sure it won't. Uh, it, it 1930 <laughs> at Kingston, um, the West Indies made, which of course is the test match where Andy Sandy went on to make his three twenty five, and England went on to win by the. Biggest margin ever by runs, I think I'm right in saying. Well, the West Indies uh, made 286 uh, in reply to to Sandham. But what I wanted to say here, though, is that I looked at the bowling figures because in addition to being the first triple century in Test cricket, it was also the final Test match for Wilfred Rhodes at the the age of 52 years and 165 days. And in that Test match, his bowling analysis, where he took one wicket in both innings, but... 20.5 overs, 12 maidens, one for 17 the first time around. 24 overs, 13 maidens, one for 22 in the second. So all I'm saying by by pointing that out is that he could have been very useful for England had he played against the Australians a little bit later that year when Don Bradman made 300 in a day. His economy rate, he could have slowed things down a wee bit. Who knows? I mean, um, and, and also it would have completed the link between... W.G. Grace, who who uh, who Rhodes played with on his debut, and, and Bradman, who he just missed out on playing Test cricket against. He did play a game of um, on that tour for Yorkshire against Bradman, but and he took five wickets in that indeed as well. But they never played a Test against each other. But um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to go there purely because we brought up that Test at Kingston quite a bit, and it ties in. So why not? No sense of how Wilfred Rhodes went at billiards or the hammer throw. <laughs> no, no, unfortunately not. But uh, but he, but he did uh, land them on a threepenny bit, as they said at the time. That is 286, our guess for Alamilu. Let us know. And our last new number, which may or may not be a nerd pledge number, it was $3 from David Jones. Uh, so it could have been 300 or it could have just been, I'd like to give you $3. I don't know. I cannot read David Jones's mind. But in the spirit of <laughs> creativity and collaboration, what could it be? Now, 300 is, of course, the number of deliveries in a one-day international if yep. it is played correctly without any extras, which has probably never happened, uh, or particularly in the World Cup final where they had 102 overs rather than 100 altogether. Uh, 300 is also the score that Martin Crowe never got. I, I think about this quite a lot because you know Martin Crowe was prone to depression and, and he was very candid about uh, eventually in his life. He wrote a piece about how the 299 he got really ruined his life for probably... 15, 20 years afterwards. Like a, a lot of the rest of his life, he was really upset that he'd missed out on that historical thing of making the triple hundred. He didn't feel good about having made 299. He felt bad about not having got 300. And I think about that quite a lot. It, it's a it's a very poignant um, image to, to have somebody carrying this little, this, this personal suffering because... They achieved something great, but they still didn't think it was great enough. Yeah. Uh, the, so the, that always comes to mind when I hear 300 in, in cricket is, is the one that wasn't quite there. Yeah, the affliction of high achievers, right? They sort of they, they frame things up slightly differently. I remember that being a, a really fantastic read as well. It's one of two instances in Test cricket where a player's fallen one short of a triple ton. So Crow and Bradman, of course, made 299 not out against the South Africans at Adelaide Oval. Uh, in 1932, 
of course, Bradman made a couple of triples, so he didn't need to sort of suffer from um, what Martin Crow did. But he, he fell one run short of, of doing it a third time. Indeed, that would have been the second time because he did so in 1930 and 1934 at Leeds. But what, what's interesting here is that uh, you look at the scorecard and Bradman's, yeah, 299 not out, but um, the number 11, Pud Thurlow, was run out for naught. So I don't really know. I, I didn't go back and read the match report, but it is kind of interesting that you wouldn't expect that when trying, I don't know whether it was the case that Bradman called him through for a quick single or Pud um, misjudged uh, what was going on out there, but he batted for 14 <laughs> minutes before being run out for naught, leaving Bradman one short of what otherwise would have been his second triple ton. So, and, no, and of course, no one has made an even 300 in test cricket. There have been a few in the low 300s, but those couple of players on 299. And, and the other that I had, Jeff, was simply a link back to the McGain test match that I talked about before. Andrew McDonald, uh, his third of test match of that series, ended up being his final test match, actually. Uh, he bowled an even 300 deliveries in test cricket for a bowling average of 33.33. I thought you'd like that. That is very nice indeed. Well, that links back. I'm prepared to take it. Those are our new numbers. Just quickly, a couple of revisits for ones we got wrong or things that I stuffed up, which were numerous last week. Uh, Christopher Weinberg had let me know that the 270 he sent through had a link to the West Wing, which I forgot to mention on the show. This whole revisit section is things that I forgot to mention or stuffed up. So uh, 270 has a link to the West Wing, which is a an American television program about the US presidency that Adam enjoys very much and I've never watched. What does that mean? Well, I've watched it a number of times. So I went back through the scripts last night just to see whether there was a 270. In cr- I mean, there's a number of cricket mentions. I think the reason... I'm, I'm sure where Chris will get to here is that one of the cricket scenes mentions 270 and I can't work that out. But in one of the Sam Seaborn uh, West Wing splaining um, uh, sort of scenes they have, he, he talks about the country of Micronesia, um, which, has, which covers 270... Um, square miles or something like that but it probably isn't that because it's got nothing to do with cricket and but nor does the fact that 270 which is the number of votes you need to win in the electoral college to win the presidency that doesn't come up uh, in reference to cricket either although in saying that it might just be the case that 270 being the magic number is a number that, mm. that he identifies with and and thus has popped through and it has nothing to do with cricket at all so um yeah, that, that's as far as I got. So, um, Chris, hit me up and, and, and tell me if I've got that right or if I've got it radically wrong and I need to go through some scripts again. I, I'm pretty confident that's going to be it. Uh, two, 270 is the EC votes that you need to be elected president. November 3rd, that's when that's coming up next. Mm. Cross your fingers. <clears throat> next on <laughs> Revisits list, Terry Hogan. Now, this is the one I really stuffed up because last week we had Terry Hogan, we had 265. You had a good... 10 to 18 minutes talking about the Nawab of Pataudi, as is, as is your want. I eventually went back and found, when Terry reminded me, that he sent, it, sent me a message saying, my number's 265, one hint, it's not the Nawab of Pataudi. It's <laughs> 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 the one thing he told me. Um, and, and he went on to say, it relates to what I think is the greatest alpha performance of all time. Now, we racked our brains together. We went off on some different tangents. You'd mentioned Alan Border the other week playing 265 test innings. That could have been alpha. But what I've come down to is is another posh banker from the 1900s to, to go with Bernard Bosey. So Arthur Hill was 
a banker who toured with Lord Hawke to India, toured to play cricket in America and Argentina, played three test matches, and in Cape Town in 1896, he made 124 runs out of a total of about 200 and... No, 300 and something. He made 124. South Africa had already been bowled out for 115. They then went on to be bowled out in their second innings for 117 to lose by an innings. So... Arthur Hill, in his one innings, made more than South Africa managed collectively in either of their two innings, and I think that's got to be the candidate <laughs> for the most helpful performance. That's, that's lovely. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely happy to go with that. Thank you, Terry Hogan. Patrick Rogers sent a message to say that Andy Sandham did not really hold the World Championship belt for 98 days for the highest score in Test cricket because his match was only bestowed Test status by the MCC retrospectively after Bradman's innings. What does Adam Collins say to this? Yeah, he's right. It's true to say that two England teams were playing, well, two MCC teams, I should say, were playing at the same time, one in New Zealand and one in the West Indies, and later on it was deemed to have Test status. So, But I'd respond by saying that if you're going to use that metric, then... Bannerman and Murdoch didn't hold the belt either because test matches were only defined as test matches in 1898. So there was this dude called Clarence Moody. He wrote a book called South Australian Cricket and he went through forensically every game from 1877 onwards and determined retrospectively which matches had sufficiently talented cricketers playing um, that they could credibly be called test matches. So when Bannerman of course, made his 165 in the first test that there was, and then Murdoch subsequently made his 211. They both occurred before 1898. So, I mean, it depends how you want to interpret it. Of course, all that um, is courtesy of Jared Kimber as well. This was on the first episode of his new podcast, which is called Double Century. So what Jared's doing there is he's taking chapters from his book a couple of years ago, which is stories of test cricket and stories of cricket at large and and going back through and, and recording the history of them. And that's why that was front of mind for me. I'm like, hang on a second, Patrick. I mean, I know that wasn't technically a test then, but... You know, it's a fluid thing, as we talked about the other week in the context of South Africa and the World Eleven games and, and, and what happened in the early 70s. What has been defined as a test match does bounce around a little bit. So I think we can still say that Andy Sandham, even though it wasn't a test then, he still was the man for 98 days. <laughs> That has been Nerd Pledge. If you'd like to play the game, you go to patron.com slash the final word. Patron is spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Once there, you log in, you sign up, you put a number in, we will see that number, we'll add it to the list and we will come to it on our show. And as I said before, if you are already there and you want to edit your number, you can do that too. Thanks so much to everyone who's been signing up over the last few months and meaning that we're suddenly cranking this show out a couple of times a week where before it might have been six times a year. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're able to do a lot more on the feed. Hopefully you've enjoyed that we're doing more in terms of the, um, the, the encore interviews. We've got quite a few of those in the can ready to go. And we're also uh, going to roll out some of our calling the shots long form interviews people really enjoyed Mark Nicholas we've got a number of those some were really good they just they just weren't done the way that you normally would do an interview so we, we're going to have to go away and do a bit of editing but they're worth putting on the final word feed as well so in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll get to working some of those up and that'll be hopefully enjoyable weekend listening and that's only possible because we have the the, the time to put into this thanks to patrons so to all of uh, those of you who've uh, in lockdown decided to throw a few bob our way, uh, we are hugely grateful and it has made a massive difference. Let's just play one more little game before we end this first segment. It's called Happy Birthday, Sachin. 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 It's your birthday. 
Satchin, Satchin, Satchin. Take it away, please. Jeff, I always love it when you call an audible. I can't see happy birthday Satchin on our run sheet, which means you've got something. You've got so- you've, you've pulled this from somewhere, and I'm not across it. So take it away. I've just I just decided to to do it on spec because you know I I'm refreshing Satchin's feed every couple of minutes, and it's, <laughs> it's rich rich with content today initially not birthday specific but birthday adjacent uh, Sachin sent a farewell to Sri Vasant Raji who was the oldest surviving first class cricketer who celebrated his 100th birthday earlier this year who passed away during the last week so Sachin visited him on his birthday because that's how enthusiastic he is about birthdays it was also Father's Day which is not a birthday but it's like a birthday for all fathers happy Father's Day Adam um you, you know, you. that's that's you now. You're in on that. Particularly liked that Sachin celebrated Father's Day by doing some yoga with his two children and then making them all take a photo together where they're all doing yoga on the balcony with some nice lush greenery in the background. So that was that was particularly nice. Then some good back and forth with Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits where Sachin was letting Mark know that he drove his parents mad at the age of 16 by blasting Dire Straits on his stereo at home. Oh, what a little rascal he was, Sachin. Oh, he was always getting into trouble. Can't you tell? A cheeky little grin. And lastly, happy birthday to Sayami Kerr, an Indian actress who describes herself in her bio as a sport Sachin chocolate and cinema lover. So she's obviously, I, I don't know if the Sachin bit got in there before the birthday wish or, or after, was she angling for the birthday wish or, or did she respond to the birthday wish by popping Sachin in the bio? But anyway, a student of the craft of acting. So she's got a photo with Sachin up on his feed as well. That's all the action from Sachin Tendulkar's birthday and birthday related online activity this week. Jeff, I for one, I'm glad you're cataloging all of these Sachin tweets and not me but I did uh, see the Mark Knopfler stuff which Harsha Bogle was uh, tweeting as well uh, there's I haven't uh, got it in front of me but essentially on an interview that uh, that, that Harsha was doing with Sachin back in the, the glory days so probably back in the early in the mid 90s or late 90s something like that it was his birthday and they got Mark Knopfler to dial into the conversation and, and send him a birthday mm. message so um, it all ties back rather beautifully so maybe the the, the route to Sachin is via Mark Knopfler. Maybe we should get Mark Knopfler on the final word. If he's a cricket fan, he, he might he might say yes. Well, obviously. I, I think there was also a photo of them meeting at one point, exchanging. I, th- I reckon one of them's being given a signed guitar and the other one's being given a cricket bat. <laughs> you know, the, the classic, the classic peace meeting <laughs> yeah, it's between say. cricketers and... <laughs> And I'm, just sort of seeing, I'm sort of seeing like last year when when uh, when uh, when Kim Jong Un met with Donald Trump in in Hanoi, wasn't it? And they were handing over you know cultural gifts, or you often see in football internationals handing the flag over. But with Knopfler and Sachin, mm. it's a, a bat and a guitar. It's perfect. I'm pretty sure what happened at that meeting was that Trump said that he'd given Kim a signed copy of Rocket Man by Elton John, um, which you know people thought was amusing in a way, but, you know, maybe a bit glib, but funny. It turned out later that it wasn't signed by Elton John. It was signed by Donald Trump. (laughs) He'd signed it himself. (laughs) And then thought that was a gift. Credit to Trump. I mean, you can't give him much, but that is good comedic value.
What's well, been like? Imagine like A being such a cheapskate that you give him a CD, but B like, well, we wanted to make sure the biggest celebrity in the country signed this, so of course it's me. Like, Jesus Christ, man! <laughs> November third, come on, baby. All right, let's uh, let's take a quick breather, and then we'll get into self advice. Adam, have you ever? thought it would be good to be able to send a text message wherever you are in the world with no problems, no hassle and no need for a new SIM card. You, you have no idea how often I've thought about this very topic. Jeff, you know how often I've queued up in phone shops around the world when we're on tour just to get a SIM card. Sometimes you need to present a bloody driver's license, your passport, your firstborn, uh, wait seven days and then maybe they'll give you a SIM card to mm. start operating locally. So, yes, please tell me more. Yeah, they're like, sir, please take down your pants, sit on this photocopier and we'll have to take a, an image of your buttocks to, to compare to the international buttock scam. Like, yeah, my God. You're like, what do you think I'm going to do with this? Like, I'm going to order pizza with this. This is the most <laughs> nefarious thing that's going to happen here. But if you are a person who often finds that you can't send a message where you need to, like you live at the edge of coverage or you like to go out hiking or you're travelling internationally, you travel a lot for business. Obviously, you're not doing that right now with COVID, but you might be starting to do that again pretty soon. Uh, or if you're a remote worker out on remote sites or you're working at sea, whatever it might be, there's a satellite gizmo. It's not a satellite phone. It's a little pocket-sized box and it links up to your existing phone and it makes it possible to send a text message from anywhere in the world, as long as you can see the sky, the signal will bounce off the satellite and send that message with no phone signal, no carrier stuff, no SIM, none of that. You need this magic little box. It's called Zolio. Zolio. Oh, oh, oh. It's spelt Z-O-L-E-O. And with Zolio, the power of worldwide messaging is in your hands. Too right, Jeff, and most convenient, just 150 grams, so it doesn't weigh that much. It weighs less than a cricket ball, I think I'm right in saying. I should know the yeah. 156 One, grams, though, for, for about yeah. the same weight as a cricket ball attached to your belt buckle and the size of a credit card. I mean, that's a, that's a lovely combination. Yeah, I mean, it, it's compact uh, and it's very, very effective. It's also dust and water resistant to a pretty hardcore degree because it's meant for people who spend their time climbing around on mountains. So if you're somebody who's out there in the wilds, obviously it's useful for you, but also if you're one of those people who just lives in a coverage dead zone where you can't get any phone access and you're trying to send the message out, you get this Zolio box, you get the Zolio app on your phone, and then whenever you're out of phone range, it will use the satellite network to send your message. And whenever you're in phone range, it will use the phone network so that you don't incur any unnecessary charges. It's completely automated. It's extremely convenient and it's uh, much more affordable than the sort of full-on sat phone rigs that the, you know, the Everest adventurers tend to use. So it's, it's for the everyday person, Zolio, and it sounds kind of cool. Yeah, I, I, you think about your quality of life in lockdown, don't you, and what you're missing out on, the good bits, the bad bits. Obviously, most of it's negative, but one positive for me is that I haven't had to go to King's Cross each day, which is usually my way into town, as you know, Jeff, coming in from North London, where there's never any fucking reception. And if, when, I, when, I come, when we come out of this, when this is all over, I'm going to have a Zolio attached to my belt when I get on the tube at home to make sure when I get out at King's Cross, <laughs> I'll be able to talk to the world. 
That's all. I, I can't wait for that. It, it will be the onion of the 2020s. It, in the 1920s, <laughs> it was an onion on your belt. Now it's Zolio. So check them out, uh, Z-O-L-E-O, Zolio.com. You can uh, go and find out all that you need to know about this device and where to get one. Let's move on to Telford Advice. Hi, everyone. You're listening to The Final Word. It's Ishigua here with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, and we're pleased to have joining us all the way from Cape Town, South Africa, via the miracles of not-so-modern technology, uh, Telford Vice. Uh, welcome to the show, Telford. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. Good to talk to you guys. We wanted to catch up with what's going on in South Africa. We spoke to Neil Manthorpe a few weeks ago about the chaos, more in terms of what was happening on the field, the the struggles with the team kind of falling apart ever since the, uh, the disastrous World Cup campaign last year. But there's a lot of stuff going on off the field as well with investigations, suspensions, sackings, money being lost, money being found. Well, maybe. Um, and a lot of it centres around Tabang Moreau, the, the notional CEO who's been suspended for the last six months on 20,000 US dollars a month to stay home, um, humorously tried to go back to the office a couple of weeks ago and found that it was locked because they've all gone home for <laughs> everybody's working from home with the COVID crisis over there, um, hasn't been allowed to return to work. But his case is still being investigated that there's, there's a financial audit that needs to be completed. There are various accusations of misdemeanors and so on. What's going on with that? Where is his case at? And, and where is that story at? Well, on Friday, um, CSA received the first part of the investigative report into Tabang Murray. So that has landed with CSA. Um, they, of course, haven't told us anything about that, and we don't know how much of that they're going to tell us. The last time they were in this kind of trouble after the Majola incident a few years ago with uh, uh, undeclared IPL bonuses, they commissioned a, also an exhaustive study and then eventually only released the executive summary, which was, what, two and a half pages or something? So I'm completely prepared for something like that. The, the, one of the complications with the Moreau case is that Moreau used to be on the board, he used to be the vice president. Um, and he, my understanding, has brought a lot of that loyalty with him when he became the chief executive. And the implication is that whatever Moreau has done wrong, if he's done wrong, that some of the board members would necessarily be implicated in that. Um, so, you know, they're kind of tired with the same brush. And uh, I think that is what's holding up this investigation. Um, Moroi also has uh, a lot of uh, support within the office. Um, and there are suggestions that powerful people within the operations arm are also involved in, 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 in delaying um, this investigation. So he's kind of, he's being kept on the books, if you like, by both of those powerful entities. And it's it's frustrating for everybody concerned. G'day, Telford. Uh, the, that's quite interesting that the chief executive ca- came from the board. That's the same situation that Kevin Roberts was in when he became uh, C- chief executive of, of Cricket Australia, recently leaving the role. Uh, we know a lot about the board structure at Cricket Australia. We've talked about it quite a bit on The Final Word over the last few years. And obviously it changed quite considerably in, in 2012. But um, give us a bit of a feel for how the board at CSA um, is brought together is it appointed? Is it elected? I mean, is it done by associations? Like, what's the, the 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 structure at a starting point so we can have some understanding of how these things might shake out? It's a very flawed structure. The the board itself is elected, um, but it's elected 
essentially from from um, the presidents of the unions. And there's this other structure called the members council, which sits above the board, but it is comprised of the presidents of the unions. So <laughs> essentially you have, you know, the, the board is governing itself in a way. And, and you know, the, who's watching the detectives, for goodness sake? And, 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 and the truth is no one is. It's, it's, it's very messy that way. So there's, you know, and, and CSA, again, to refer back to the Majola, um, the IPL bonus thing from uh, 2009, um, the fallout of that was that a retired judge called uh, Nicholson wrote this whole report and said, the only way out here is if you commission, if you, if you establish a board which is 50-50 between independent and non-independent members. And of course, the board weren't having that, and it still waited seven to five in favour of non-independence. Um, and of course, near the end of last year, what was it? Three of the independents actually resigned. So you know that tells you where it's at. So yeah, so it's it's a very flawed structure. It elects itself. It governs itself. It's there's no proper oversight over cricket South Africa. So if they were to go ahead, as you suggested, they might and try to bury the findings of this report or give a, a very um, summarised version without any of the detail, what chance would they have of... It, it sounds like they'd be pretty likely to get away with that. Uh, is there any other kind of influence that can be brought to bear? What's the relationship between government and the CSA board, for instance, um, is, is that supporting that sort of behaviour or, or opposed to it? Jeff, you know, this being South Africa, the, the elephant in the room is, is race. Um, it, it really is. And, and it's so riven at the moment, it's more riven than ever. So you have... Uh, Tabang Murray, of course, is, is black African. He's been suspended. A lot of his alliances within cricket are black African as well. A lot of the government is black African. The The... the problem with this scenario is that a lot of the people who've been appointed uh, since Murray was suspended are white. In fact, almost all of them are. And so this has only served to intensify the race issue and it's sort of served to put government at odds with CSA. Um, CSA were in Parliament a couple of days ago presenting, as they have to do, to the Parliamentary Committee. And um, and Chris Nanzani, who's also a black African, was asked, how come you've appointed all these white guys? And his answer was completely the wrong answer. He said, well, they're on merit. And the minister jumped all over him and said, are you trying to tell me that only white people have merit in this situation? What the hell? You know, so that's where we are in that conversation. Government is looking at CSA. Government always is. But at the moment, you know, government is more focused on the, on the racial aspect of things. Um, as, as you should be, you have to be in South Africa. It does not look good when you have this major crisis and you get rid of all uh, well, a lot of black guys, including okay, find Corey Fansell and and and, and um, Clive Exty and Corey Fansell's come back. He was those three year two were among the seven suspended staff members. But then who do you appoint? You appoint Jacques Fall as your acting CEO. He's white. You appoint Graham Smith as your director of cricket. He's white. Jacques Callis is your batting consultant. You demote a black African coach and put Mark Boucher in his place. You know, yes, maybe these people possibly, certainly they're qualified, um, all of them. But how do you think it looks? You know, and, and, and how do you think government are going to react to that? And they're not happy. And that's the level of government's oversight. They're not really looking into who stole what money. And, of course, the other aspect of that is that when you look at, say, Mark Boucher or Jacques Callas, you can say they're extremely qualified, they've played however many hundred international matches and so on, but a, a big un 
acknowledged part of that a lot of the time is that they had more opportunities to play those matches. You know, white players had far more opportunities in that team to build those careers, to have those credentials behind them, to be able to take those positions in the current climate. Exactly. I mean, you know, you can't get away from it. White people in South Africa, all over the world, are born into privilege. It's not a choice you make. Nobody's saying you're a bad person because you were born into privilege. What were you going to do about it? But we haven't yet reached that level of the conversation in South Africa. We haven't. It's, it's, a, it's a very dangerous thing to say to any white person, you're privileged, because you're going to end up either beating each other up or, or, or having a fruitless conversation. You know, we certainly, we just haven't reached that level of debate in this country, I'm afraid. It's pretty interesting, uh, Telford, that we talk about transformation targets or quotas in the on-field side of things quite a bit with Cricket South Africa and, you know... I know we're not discussing that today, but um, it feels as though whilst on the field it's been a big emphasis, uh, what you're depicting here is off the field, it's, an inf- it's something that informs the conversation, but there's no sort of targets about administration and board and so forth? Mm, sure. Uh, there don't need to be, you know. Of, of, there have been 10 uh, presidents of Cricket South Africa, for instance, um, and, and that includes two acting presidents, and only three of those 10 people have not been black of some description, brown or black, shall right. we say. So, you know, and the board is properly transformed. Um, the board is, is, is actually pretty racially transformed. But what has happened is, of course, this always gets insidious. The board are lambasted, particularly by white sections of South African cricket. Um, just, you know, just completely, you know, they don't know what they're doing, whatnot. People in South African cricket basically wait for black figures to fail. You do get that feeling. I've, I've had the feeling for a while now that people have waited for Moreau to fail. Um, so you have this double standard at work all the time. It's insidious. It's kind of underground. The other side of it is that is that prominent black figures, particularly media, will defend Moreau and defend the board and Nenzani to the nth degree, and they'll be completely different. So we're stuck between these two poles, you know. We don't talk to each other in South African cricket, we just shout at each other or we ignore each other. We make Australians look subtle. <laughs> it's, <you know. laughs> so that's where we are. It's, it's so, not a good place. So where does it sit? You mentioned Clive Eckstein, and we'll speak about him next in a bit more detail, but he's an executive at Cricket South Africa who was recently sacked. He's a white executive He's been defended a lot by a lot of the white people around South African cricket, saying he's he's been misrepresented and unfairly dismissed and he's contesting his dismissal and so on. Uh, a lot of the same people who think that Moreau is a problem and has to go. How much is, is race the key factor in how that's interpreted and in who's doing the interpreting? It's absolutely the key factor. You know, it's, it's, it's just that that line is very rarely crossed. You know, um, whites are defending Eckstein, and, and not just defending, but saying he would never do anything wrong. <laughs> it's beyond defence. It's like he would never do anything wrong, and we don't know that. You know, we cannot say that um, he has been found guilty. He is appealing, um, and he and he seems to have a strong case. But we can't simply say he would never do anything wrong. Um, on the Eckstein case, um, I, I've noticed that there isn't much reaction from black quarters, actually. There's a kind of indifference to what's happened to Eckstein. Um, I'm not really sure why that is, um, but certainly on the white side of the fence, there is utter outrage and, and just, you know, illogical defense of him. Mm. 
So Clive Eckstein is someone that Australian listeners to the show might be most familiar with from Australia's test match at Port Elizabeth in 2018 when there were some supporters who were, were coming there bringing masks that had been banned because they were using them to um, harass Candace Warner, David Warner's wife, and uh, they'd been prohibited from entering the ground and Clive Eckstein uh, intervened with security and, and had these guys let in and then posed for a photo with them wearing these masks, which were, uh, you, you know, a pretty grim form of sexual harassment. That's how he came to the attention of an Australian audience. He was reprimanded but allowed to continue in his job. He's not necessarily a figure that you would feel sorry for from an Australian perspective when you hear that he's lost his job. But he's the head of sales and sponsor relations, so he's basically the finance guy in charge of getting money coming in. He's been sacked ostensibly for not uh, for, for making a deal that wasn't for as much money as the board said that they wanted when he's saying that he he wasn't made aware of that or that they'd signed off on it earlier or whatever it is that's that's essentially the case that's against him it's kind of it's strange for this to be couched in terms of a charge or in terms of being found guilty of a charge when it's been set up that way what background can you give us on that story on you know What's behind that? What's happened to him? And and are there other reasons that he might be being forced out? That incident with the uh, with the, at St George's Park. Um, already then there was a feeling there was a there was actually those were moves to get rid of Clive Eckstein Already then that was the first time he was suspended. Um, he and another guy were suspended who did the same thing. Also posed in the picture, Altaf Kazi, who was the head of media. And uh, Altaf Kazi in particular was quite loyal to Harun Logat, who was the chief executive at that time. Um, and, and already there was, a, there was a tie to get rid of Harun Logat by then. And, and it, it, it gained momentum. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Um, and, and, and so that was the first kind of move to, to get rid of Eckstein. Um, Altaf Kazi in that situation actually resigned. Uh, he could see it coming. He could see that, that there were moves to get rid of him. And that's so he walked. Uh, Clive Eckstein did not and you know that it's very rare in certainly in South African corporate life for somebody to be suspended twice by the same organization that doesn't happen um, I don't know maybe the uh, other systems are different but that's what happens in South Africa if you are suspended then you are handed a charge sheet and and, and there are these certain charges on there um, Eckstein's defense against the charge that actually got him fired is that he did not sign this deal. His signature is not on the agreement which um, got South Af uh, Cricket South Africa, what is it, 100,000 US dollars less than, than they thought they could get. So, yeah. So, this, that, that saga started, you know, then at St. George's Park. They've been trying to get rid of him since then, essentially. Um, and, and, and now they've managed. In really simple terms, how come they haven't been able to get rid of him? I was really surprised when I read that about the uh, the shortfall in the deal. I couldn't believe that he was reinstated after what happened in 2018. Well, the shortfall in the deal, he says that wasn't his doing. Um, he did not make the decision. It wasn't his to make and he, and he, and he didn't make it. Um, it would seem a silly thing to claim that if you can't prove it. So let's see what happens at his appeal. Um, with the Candace Warner situation... You know, the, the, the fact is that if other people had done what those two did, they probably, at Cricket South Africa, they probably would not even have been suspended. Um, you know, this is, sometimes South Africa really is the Wild West. We, we pay, pay a lot of lip service to things like gender rights and whatnot, but, but there's not, you don't see too much of that. That only comes into play, those kinds of arguments, when you are trying to get rid of somebody. 
That's what happens. It's quite difficult to get fired in South Africa, um, but that can be used to fire you. Um, you know, and, and yes, in better societies, it, it wouldn't happen, and in better societies, it would that would be enough to fire you, but in terms of the Candace Warner incident, but that's not enough to get you fired in South Africa. Um, you know, we're, we, 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 we say we became a democracy 26 years ago, but what we did was... You know, we simply made some of the poor people a little more rich. We don't have a democracy. We have something else. I remember when interviewing you, Telford, uh, during the 2018 series about this very topic, about uh, what happened at St George's Park, you, you said that there is no Me Too movement in South Africa. That's <laughs> sort of always stuck with me, that line, that uh, when it comes to gender equality, it's a, it's a fluid idea. Yeah, it's, it's not very real. It's, it's, never, it's hardly ever used constructively in South Africa. It's often used negatively as a weapon, as I've just explained. Um, but we have, I mean, we have rampant gender violence. We have, you know, our gender equation is just so messed up. The president was on television, Cyril Ramaphosa, the other day, talking ostensibly about COVID, but he spent half the time talking about the epidemic of violence against women and children. Uh, because, you know, everybody's been forced into lockdown. And what do you think that does if you're living with an abusive partner? You know, it's just horrific. Um, and of course, law enforcement isn't nearly what it should be. So it's just a compounding of, of problems. And yeah, so a Candace Warner face mask is not going to get you into too much trouble unless somebody wants to land you in trouble. Right. So there was a sense that that was being used as a weapon against someone who was disliked. Um, is there a similar sense, uh, the credible sense that the moves against Tabang Moreau are also uh, are also caused by a campaign that wants to get rid of him for any reason rather than because of what he's alleged to have done in terms of, you know, the allegations are basically around fiddling money using company um, credit cards for personal use and that sort of thing. Is that actually the issue or, or are there people who want to get rid of him for other reasons? Um, I think those are the issues. I, I think in, in Tabang Moreau's case, it's, it, there are genuine issues. Um, it doesn't help in the general narrative of things that he is black. You know, and I don't mean that in any bad way. It's just that he's he arrives with assumed guilt because he is a black South African, especially in a game like cricket, which is played by, followed by, uh, watched by, consumed more by black South Africans than white South Africans, but it's still seen as a white game, but particularly by white people. And so right. any black person in South African cricket, first he's got to prove himself worthy to, to a lot of white people. Um, you know, he doesn't arrive just as, okay, this is your job, get on with it. It's not like that. So, so Tabang Maria would have brought all of that with him, all of that unfair baggage, you know. Um, and yes, I'm afraid he hasn't done himself too many favours. He has done, he's got a lot wrong. Um, and, 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 and so I think the case against him is pretty genuine. Um, but of course, you know, nothing is fairly judged in this country. Right. In terms of the three-team tournament, you mentioned that before. They've cooked up this format where three teams of eight players each will play each other in a knockout or something. Uh, Graham Smith came out and said it was going to happen. Then the government said that there hasn't been any approval for it. Um, how did they cock that up so badly? And, and also, why, why? what is this format for? What's the... What's the point? What are they trying to achieve? We've, we've kind of all been asking ourselves those kind of questions. And uh, it's a funny, it's a strange story. I mean, it's the invention of Paul Harris, who's a, the uh, cricket tragic, not the tragic cricketer in left on spinner who tried to bowl slow in a pace attack. Um, and uh, he's this millionaire banker who hit upon this idea. 
his wife and daughter were playing cards <laughs> in a game meant for two and he wanted to play as well and suddenly this spark went off in his head and he devised this weird bastardized form of I don't know to call it cricket is, is difficult um, but the point is I mean CSA are deep in the financial you know pits um, they, the South African Cricketers Association estimates that they're going to u- lose a billion rand what is that again I think that's 57 million dollars by the end of the 22, uh, 2022 right cycle um, and so they are desperate to make some money and this thing would have made them some money. The teams were sponsored um, and, and, and uh, you know, production costs were getting taken care of by Supersport, the broadcaster. So they would have made some money from it. Um, and, and, and also they would have made money for charity. They, they were trying to make it around three million rand for charity. So there were, you know, good things about it. But we're all looking and well, why don't you just play T20 for goodness sake? You know, just do that. Or, you know, a couple of T20s. But Paul Harris is a powerful man. Um, he wanted this thing out there. He enlisted uh, Francois Pinot, the rugby captain from 95, who won the World Cup, um, who's a, a quite a sports, uh, you know, impresario in this country, entrepreneur, he's got all sorts of, and does very good things. And he enlisted him, um, and he's a very, he's, he's very good at marketing this stuff, and they put this thing out there. So those are some of the things. I think the fact that Paul Harris is this heavyweight with money and Hello, he's worth 200 million US dollars. You know, you could get us out the door, couldn't he? So th- there's that relationship. Um, Paul Harris has been involved with CSA before. In fact, he sat on one of the governance committees. Um, and, 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 and he actually uh, blew the lid. He was one of three committee heads who blew the lid off the Majola scandal. Um, he was one of those. So he's got this, he's seen as this very proper figure. So having him on side is not the worst thing. Um, yeah, and then you come up with this weird idea. You know, it's still, it doesn't make much sense. Also, it's winter. <laughs> we really shouldn't be playing cricket in South Africa of any kind. So there's a lot wrong with this thing. But the only things that were right is, yes, they were going to make some money for CSA and they were going to raise some money for charity. The rest of it is a mess. As far as what happens next, uh, I note that the advice from the government is they have now got that approval that they failed to uh, achieve for the first uh, that, that three-team tournament. Um, does that mean that the expectation is that the next cricket we'll see in South Africa will be a, a version of that, or, or are we waiting until uh, the season proper when domestic cricket starts, or, or, or will COVID, um, based on current trends, and I know the case load is going up quite considerably in South Africa at the moment, um, is the expectation that we'll be waiting quite a while? Well, they have cleared now to train, not to play. And they, and, and, they, and they can't they can't even assemble as a squad as yet. The, the players are, are are training in their various franchise venues in small groups, so they don't, they couldn't do a thing like three DC yet because you can't have that many people in, on one cricket ground essentially. Right. So so that's still in the works. And of course, because they got burned so badly with this, they're not they're only saying what they absolutely have to right now. Um, so yeah, you know, the South Africa's next. It's still on the books is that they they need to be in the West Indies by the middle of July, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that hasn't been postponed or cancelled yet. But you can't see that happening. I mean, that's two and a half weeks from now, for goodness sake. So that's unlikely to happen. Um, and then, yeah, their next engagement, if I have my facts straight, is the, the T20 World Cup, you know. So they, they, they are trying to get India to come to South Africa um, in August to play three T20s which would earn South Af- Cricket South Africa 10 million US dollars, which would, uh, you know, obviously put a dent in the losses. 
Um, but these things are all up in the air at this stage. Of course, half the world is shouting at India for them to come and play because everyone wants to make money. So, yeah, at the moment, all we are certain of is that the players have been cleared to return to train. Playing is still a way off. And the virus picture in South Africa has been pretty grim. Adam and I were talking about it a couple of weeks ago. They were at about 2,000 detected cases a day, and now it's up to more like 6,000 um, and, and heading northwards. You were talking before about those intersections of disadvantage where you're talking about race, gender, poverty. You know, Women in poverty in South Africa are the ones copying the worst of it um, from all of those different factors. What's the feel on the ground in South Africa? Where, where does it look like this might go? How, how bad might it get? And, you know, are the numbers that we're getting only a, a, a small fraction of what's actually going on over there, given that, you know, there are such large communities living in close quarters and in poverty where the testing presumably wouldn't be adequate to, to cover a lot of the cases? Yeah, it's not, it's the, the picture really doesn't look good. We're coming out of lockdown now. We're now on our level three. We started off on level five. And, uh, you know, for, for if you're living a pretty middle-class life, then things have got pretty much back to normal. They started off quite strict. You, you, you weren't even allowed out of your house to exercise in the beginning. Um, you couldn't buy alcohol, for instance, at all. Um, and, uh, you know, some of those things have now eased away. You still can't buy cigarettes legally, although there's a roaring illegal trade going on. Um, and, you know, these are... And, and the, the, the problem is, is that South Africa... You can't, I mean, it's not as if our economy was in great shape before this. And, uh, you know, the, that strain on the economy is, has forced the government to move out of lockdown, even though we're nowhere near our peak in terms of infection. We're probably two months away from peak infections. Um, but already you can go get yourself a haircut. You can go to a coffee shop, you know, uh, and those kinds of things. So it's not looking good. Um, the Minister of Health wrote a really good piece in the Sunday Times this week, uh, just explaining, you know, just how bad it is and his day, he's sleeping kind of two hours a day, um, trying to sort this out. And he's said today we're heading into the storm. So there's real fear. Um, you know, there's, there's, South Africans did not take this thing particularly seriously at the beginning. Now there does seem to be more more seriousness and, and more vigilance being, being uh, you know, being shown to the pandemic. But, uh, yeah, as you said, you know, uh, out in the townships, which is what we call our black residential areas, there's no... It, it, social distancing, for instance, is impossible. You know, this, this, you can't. You, you're living eight people in a room. What, what kind of social distancing are you going to get, you know, get there? And hygiene standards are obviously not great. You know, running water is not a given. You know, so how are you going to wash your hands? So there's those kinds of issues. And yes, as always, it's going to be the poorest and the, and, and the least advantaged or most disadvantaged are going to cop the biggest deal in this. It's not heartening news, but it's always good to at least find out what's going on over in South Africa, a country we've had a lot to do with and, and we'll continue to have a lot to do with. Uh, Telf Advice, thanks so much for joining once again The Final Word. Thanks, fellas. It's good to see some human beings. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thank you to Telf Advice for taking some time out of his day to give us his expertise on the South African situation. Thanks to everybody for listening into the show as well. I, I can't tell you how nice it is to put the show out each week and have people listen to it. It makes the whole thing 
much more meaningful. You know, there's, there's, there's more inspiration to do it than if no one were listening to it. I, I think our enthusiasm would have waned by now. But you're out there, you're listening. The amount of correspondence we've had with people writing through patron and so on has been a real high point of the last few weeks in knowing that everybody's out there and we're all in it together yeah and we've always had great listeners and we've always had people who have been um, happy to sort of bounce back and forth with us on on social media and, and the patreon page uh, in in more recent times but it doesn't get any less gratifying i suppose i mean because we still put in a fair bit of work to the show each week and the people are out there going thank you for doing that and um, we're not saying that we need the thank yous but when they do come through they're really great. We like to issue a lot of thank yous at the end of our show as well for we are grateful. We are grateful for Bad Producer Productions. We're grateful for Dave Collins, Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards for taking us under their wing a couple of years ago, whatever it was, maybe it was 18 months ago, and, and making us part of the Bad Producer Productions family. Their link is in the show notes if you want to hear some of their other great shows. One of those shows um, is Calling the Shots. The last episode of Calling the Shots will be on the final word feed on Friday, Saturday. So I think it's Friday uh, night Australia time uh, it should go up around that uh, it's about uh, a, a different kind of episode really so we, we've typically focused on one thing well this time around we're sort of tying up some loose ends in order to feel where cricket broadcasting is in 2020 and where it'll be in the 2020 so for example looking at the influence of female broadcasters which didn't exist until recent times really with the ex- with a couple of notable exceptions we barely heard women on the airwaves that's very different now for the better um, the way that data has been integrated the way that statisticians have got a far bigger role in the broadcast and then we have a chance to wrap up the show and, and tell you what we've learnt across the three months so that'll be on the feed on Friday or Saturday so hopefully you get a chance to to enjoy that over the weekend. I feel like a, an actual sports player at the moment, but thanks to the sponsors. <laughs> they, they help keep things moving around here, uh, Seabus and Zolio. On today's show, you can go through and find their links if you want to send a bit of web traffic their way and look at what they have to offer. And particularly thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the final word. It's pretty amazing what has been built up there um, by everybody who's come together and decided to do it we are delighted to be able to keep making this show for you every week and we'll keep doing it this has been the final word adam collins and jeff lemon we can't wait to be back with you again next week good night